0: Our speaker today is uh, Michael Lee, uh, who is from uh, the College of Charleston in the Communications Department, where he is an associate professor. He is the co-founder and secretary of WIG's purpose, which is a nonprofit organization uh, focusing on childhood cancer research and advocacy. He was actually visiting Sasha's class earlier to talk about that organization and is separate from this work, but I'm sure he'd be happy to talk to you about the, uh, anything about that organization. Uh, he is the author of Creating Cons- Post-war words that's actually harder than you might think. Post-war words that made a movement. There you go. Um, and that and this talk is drawing from that book. So what we thought we would do is mix up the format a little bit. If I say that I expect you all to look up on your computers and be like, what? <laughs> mix up the format a little bit and start with a discussion. Do any of you want to move closer? Because this is kind of Huh? Come on. Come on down. We'll make the room feel less cavernous. I thought we would start with a discussion uh, about uh, conservatism, and uh, trying not to blow any of the key points from the talk. So if I if we if, if I start to direct you down the wrong pathway, you're like, no, no, I can't blow that okay. talking point. Or
1: I'll try really hard.
0: Yeah, uh, but uh, I was uh, intrigued when I when I read um, the description of the talk. Um, there was this line that. Um, Said that Mike would be looking at the influence of the conservative canon on traditional libertarian and other types of conservatives, and uh, I thought I bet a lot of people are curious about what does that mean? Other types of conservatives, because I think we tend to think of conservatism as one thing. You know, we sort of have a good idea of what it is, and you know, it sort of it's Reagan, and maybe Trump is a different take on what that is, but it's just kind of conservatism is this thing, right? And actually, conservatism is a is a plural thing, there are conservatisms, right. it's a process, it's historically changed over time in America, and I wonder if we could start right. with just uh, giving a sense of what it means to speak of conservatisms in America instead of conservatism.
1: There you go. So there's kind of like a cottage industry amongst some historians to identify and describe and name many, many different types of conservatism, and it seems like they kind of fall into two camps, the, the essentialists, which say that, yeah, there might be some different shades, or different, use a different metaphor, some different branches, but there's a singular trunk, right? But then there's others, which is more the camp that I'm in, that thinks of conservatism as kind of a hydra with multiple different heads, none of which is really connected to the other one except for some body somewhere. And then you chop one off, and then another one that's a little different reappears. Um, so there, I'm sure
0: they feel that way about liberals too. Yeah, just to be fair. I
1: think so. Yeah, it's I think not so. About
0: the monstrosity of the hydra. No conservative. You know, it's there's a multiple on the other side. That's right. That,
1: right. And I try really hard to write more or less objectively in a sense. I mean, I, I tried to write from a kind of neutral, interested neutral observer about conservatism. So what I'm trying to do, I think, is equally applicable to liberalism in terms of conserva- conservative movement culture and conservative media use. Um, and to that end, I, I think it could easily be applied to other countries or other cultures. I just haven't done it. Yeah. yeah.
0: Well, so if, well, just to back up a minute, just for context, I'll say that in 1983 or 84, I think it was 83, Alan Brinkley, who wrote uh, Voices of Protest, a book that Josh is familiar with, or he used it in his thesis um, about populism and conservatism in America, Father Coughlin, and so on. Uh, he wrote an essay in the American Historical, I think it was American Historical.
1: Yeah, or I or thought it was 94.
0: No, no, it's the early 80s. Okay. Uh, there, that was the follow-up essay.
1: Oh, the follow-up. Um, so That's... saying
0: like, why are we studying conservatism? What the hell's going on? Right. And there was one big book by Leah Rabufo on the old Christian right and about uh, fascist right-wingers in America. Yeah. And um, people were like, "Yeah, that's right." And now the consensus is like, "Wow, too much on historic conservatism now." The, you know, right. <laughs> like book after book after book on conservatism. So we really made up for for a lot of time on that front, I think.
1: That's right. That's right. I mean, to to some extent, you know, there's there's this argument that conservatism has always existed in the United States, and that it's it's gotten lots of treatments, and so lots of books about the Klan are also about, in some sense, conservatism, uh-huh. right? But then conservatism as a named movement really only starts in the the 50s-ish, right. and so then it took the Academy quite a while to, to catch up on that, I mean a few decades. Yeah. Um, so there's two sides of that coin too, I think, depending on what, how we define what we're looking at.
0: Right, right, so what do you think I mean, what does that mean to say that there are traditionalist, libertarian, and other types of conservatives? What are the other types? I mean, even if we sort of stick to the post-war, post-World War II, what are the sort of branches if we go with, we can go with the hydro or the tree metaphor. Yeah. What are all the
1: pieces (laughs) of conservatism? Yeah, use a different metaphor. Conservatives like to talk about three legs of a stool, which is the traditionalist, libertarian, and anti-communists, and so those are the three legs of the of the post-war conservative right stool.
0: And the traditionalist basically means like moral cultural conservatives.
1: Precisely, yeah. I think about that both in a in a in a religious sense. In other words, that's the way to smuggle in religious ideas into government. But it's also perhaps an Edmund Burkean anti-revolutionary sense that, about social evolution versus revolution, and those mm-hmm. those two kinds kind of commingle uneasily under the libertarian uh, excuse me under the traditionalist framework.
0: How does the libertarian tradition complement or diverge from the other two traditions?
1: Um, I think the libertarian tradition my argument is that it refutes them and that they have existed in this kind of really really not fully negotiated peace agreement because of A, a movement culture, which is what I talk about, and B, the existence of common enemies to fight against. And so libertarians oppose communism or statism or liberalism or whatever sort of ism in the same sense that traditionalists do, in the same sense that anti-communists do, but they do so for remarkably different reasons. And so there's, there's also a separate identity associated with libertarians, and so not all conservatives are libertarians and not all libertarians are conservatives, but there is definitely a kind of Olympic Vin circling that happens where there's a crossover, but where libertarianism becomes libertinism, or where it it becomes Mm anti-militarist, and certainly where it becomes atheist, Um, there's a a clear-ish demarcation that conservatives have put in place and libertarians have pushed back against that line. Um, But the rest of it, all the assumptions about unwieldy government and taxation being close to theft, and yeah,
0: yeah. But I mean, I find I, I find interesting how libertarianism often doesn't work in the cons- or the way the moments of friction. Right? Yeah. I mean, when uh, Rand Paul was on William F. Buckley's firing line, um, right. they agreed that you know Reagan was spending too much money on social it, quote entitlement programs and right. stuff like that. But then you know. Rand Paul was like, is it Ron Paul or Rand Paul?
1: I think you're thinking of Ron.
0: The the senior. Yeah, Ron. Sorry, Ron Paul. Uh, what you know opposed any kind of military spending whatsoever.
1: Right, that's right. Of course, right. you
0: know Buckley was the opposite. Right, so The that's more you right. spend on the military, the better. The best. That's really important. That's part of his anti-communist line. Yeah. And I I read a great article in um, the New York Review of Books. Um, uh, right when the tea party was at its yeah. peak and it was yeah. kind of participant observation stuff of a journalist going to all these Tea Party events yeah. and there are lots of libertarians there and I think yeah. we have a kind of idea in our head of what the Tea Party is of kind of right wing nuts that, you know, dress up as Paul Revere and uh, I mean there's more to it but I think the media there? image no, just
1: kidding. <laughs> There was a lot of that That's a bad joke. Right. <laughs> I was trying to be objective. Okay. Anyway.
0: Uh but you know you go with the the person who wrote this article a very good journalist you know is hanging out and he and he's seeing uh, uh, people in like um you know, what would Jesus do? Type t shirts, right? right? People who are, you know, identifying as, as Christians and wearing that quite obviously. I mean, literally wearing those kind of t shirts. And then also people with Ayn Rand t shirts on. Right. You know, like these are all Tea Party people together. So it's, it's a, a uh, it can be an awkward. Uh, Triangulation. Yeah. This, this stool.
1: Strange right? bedfellows. Yeah. yeah exactly. Lots of different metaphors for yeah, yeah. for strangers.
0: Yeah. And, and, and then of libertarians who are you just really don't care about gay marriage one way or the other. They're not really sure about marriage because it's the state saying you know signing Precisely. off on a contract between two people. Yeah. Um. And they're pretty comfortable with abortion. Whatever, oh, yeah. Do whatever you want. Raise your body. And so that that can be complicated too.
1: That's right, yeah, there's the joke that's told in a book called Radicals for Capitalism that's, it's not funny in like an objective sense, but it's sort of entertaining for this sense, is that a traditionalist and a libertarian are fighting about social morality, and the traditionalist says, well you would allow fornication in public parks, and the libertarian says, what do you mean, public parks? (laughs) 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 Uh (laughs)
0: Uh-huh,
1: anyway, (laughs) you're right. (laughs) Thanks. It's like a dad joke. Um, a bad dad uh, joke. It was a dad joke.
0: Yeah, but it's, it's okay. Uh, it's not so much. So joke. you were you were saying that you try to take a you know you're interested but a kind of neutral stance in certain ways. That's um, right. In other words, you're not writing from a hardcore advocacy position of like we must topple the conservatives. That's right. Um, what are the pros and cons of that approach, and how does that really play out in your research? Is it a question of tone? Is I mean, it's a question yep. of argument, but it's also a question of tone. Um, it influences your audience to some extent, right?
1: To who you reach. What are your thoughts on? That? Uh, yeah, good questions. So there's a lot there. So I thought, in a sense, I try to think about what conservatives are trying to do when they read these books that I talk about as the conservative canon, or what the authors were out to do. What was the kind of rhetorical moment they found themselves in, and what goals did they want to accomplish? Mm-hmm. And then try to be charitable, a charitable reader. Uh, From that stance, I also don't set out with a particular axe to grind other than understanding the formation of arguably the most important political movement in the 20th century, at least in the United States, as far as the United States is concerned. And the the fundamental question I'm trying to ask is how do conservatives understand themselves, not how do I understand conservatism for better and for worse? And, And for worse is, of course, excusing things that could be criticized, but I, I also feel very comfortable um, that other academics and journalists are, are taking up those cudgels, so it's not as if conservatives are getting a free pass in this country. In fact, the opposite is true, which is that, especially amongst the academy, that too often we're really quick to criticize and, and not as quick to understand, and so I write from that perspective to try to figure out stories about the right that have not been told except amongst the right. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, so that, that brings me to the, 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 there's an accusation that comes from the right all the time about the liberal bias of the academy and also the liberal media, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's that's a good way to rally the troops, right? Uh, just like the culture wars. I mean, it gets people uh, right. agitated and angry and gets them to donate to things or take, you know, vote or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but what do you make of it? Is Is it is there... Is there is there proof of that? Is something we should think about and interrogate?
1: Yeah, Alterman says that it's Eric Alterman says that it's a, a working the refs strategy, and I tend working to working the refs. Working the refs. You just That's keep a
0: sports y- analogy. So yes, it really is. Understand.
1: Just you, as a basketball coach, theoretically, you just keep yelling at the refs, and eventually they're going to start to see the world your way, uh-huh. because they won't want to make you angry, or they'll try to get on your good side, uh-huh. and so the more you yell about liberal media, the more that that perhaps journalists who are not all that liberal will self-censor themselves because they know the criticism about liberalism is coming. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a kind of, I'm interested in contradictions and identities and how, how identity, political identity is not necessarily a rational endeavor but is more of an emotional mm-hmm. um, or perhaps some other sort of um, psychological endeavor. And so it's very difficult to sit on Fox News on the most watched news network on O'Reilly before it was canceled on the most watched news show and yell about liberal media so there's an obvious massive contradiction <laughs> uh, there. And I think most journalists, I mean, most interviews with journalists who are self-identified liberals, the power of self-censorship is, is tremendous and, and is overlooked. Yep. Um, liberalism in the academy, I don't know. I mean, you can easily balance that out with, with conservatism in the armed forces or police forces, and there's a chicken-egg question there of whether your ideology precedes Occupation, or the other way around. So mm-hmm. it, there's there's a lot of sociology to unpack there that I'm not qualified to do.
0: Yeah, I, it's, um, I'm not sure if everyone knows who Eric Alterman is. Mm, no, yeah, he's um uh, he just referenced he uh, writes he has a regular column for The Nation and he's written quite a few books and um, he's got one called What Liberal Media? Question mark. Yeah. That um, is is. Go um,
1: to. Like Ish, it's dated now, but still it's, quite good.
0: Yeah, it, it's got some. It's it, the, the section on like the interweb is really right. Not is very weak. The last part about electronic media and like you know, he's not about TV, he's about print media. Yeah. But it's pretty interesting in terms of looking at the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and all and uh, Washington Post and just a lot of, and, and how different publications actually really really are. They're like we acknowledge that most demo, most journalists vote Democratic, right? but that doesn't mean that their work has to be, you know, completely dominated by that and how do we strike mm-hmm. balance and how do we keep hiring editors to try to just be fair and balanced you know That's but right. they're working at it so hard Um, and just getting no credit at all from the conservatives who are constantly.
1: Yeah, I mean the conservatives have nothing to gain by saying great job, they have everything to lose.
0: Yeah, that's true. Um, I I was interviewed by someone um, about uh, a firing line and they were asking me about Stephen Colbert and The Daily Show and stuff and there had just been an op-ed by or well, not an op-ed, but a, a, a column by one of the New York Times uh, conservative editorialists um, about um, the Samantha B problem.
1: Right. So this guy was Ross Douthat. Me, what? Sorry. Douthat wrote the column. Ross Douthat. Yes,
0: Ross Douthat. Yeah. Um. The, and and so this guy, the interviewer, was asking me about what is the Samantha B problem, and I was like, I don't really see that as a problem. <laughs> I mean, she's, she's extremely funny. Um, yeah, And the, his problem seemed to be that all the comedy was liberally biased, and, and I was like, well, how come conservatives aren't cranking out good comedy? You know what I mean? <laughs> like, <laughs> like yeah. it's true that all the good, you know, like, I'm not seeing a lot of good satire from the right, uh, and.
1: It's funny, yeah. That's, I thought the, the Samantha Bee problem was also about the echo chamber too—that yeah. only liberals would see it, and so yeah, doesn't exactly. really matter.
0: Yeah, yeah. Because right. like John Oliver's—you know—he's—he's he's pretty good, but he's right. not talking to anyone who's like, oh, I've just had an epiphanic moment from watching John Oliver. I never realized how you know. Uh, terrible (laughs) Marine Le Pen was at this
1: very moment. uh, I had my first moment with that the other day when I have a student in my graduate course on social movements who worked for the Koch brothers. Uh She worked for Americans for Prosperity Mm -hmm. uh, pumping coal into West Virginia. So she was doing pro-coal mining commercials in southern West Virginia for the Koch brothers, and she's Ow. a self-identified conservative, she's from West Virginia, but she's also kind of a, a southern lost cause-ish type of person, confederacy was right type of person, and so she watches John Oliver, but also listens to Limbaugh every day, and so she brought in a clip from John Oliver, and she loved it because John Oliver was going after northern cities for having more segregated, racially segregated schools, than southern cities, so she was willing to take this sort of vaguely liberal critique of segregation (laughs) as long as it was targeted at an untraditional target, the north and not the south. So she she really loved it. She's like, I usually don't like Oliver, but on this issue, he's right. Well, that's
0: interesting that she watches, though, because our our sort of platitude is that everyone's just watching what they already agree with now. Anyway, it's all echo chamber, and the liberals watch the liberal, and the conservatives watch Fox News, and, you know, it's kind of
1: interesting. That's right. There is a movement to make conservatism kind of for lack of a better word bro-ier um, on this new it's television show we Yeah, more younger younger funny uh, memes that sort of thing participatory culture on CRTV so you some want this have heard of what bros are and now they're applying and now they want to be that right. yeah they want to be less buttoned down more funny t-shirts and Professionally disheveled hair and yeah. stylish beards and such, still very masculine. Uh, but CRTV, headed by Mark Levin, which is conservative review television, um, is is a brand new venture. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like th- th- it, what Air America was. Yeah. Um, in Do you the 2000s. Air
0: America?
1: No. no. Yeah, fill us in. Air America was an attempt by the guy who now hosts um, WTF, Mark Marin, and Senator Al Franken, and Jeanine Garofalo, and a few of those types, to figure out the answer to the question, why is liberalism not popular on talk radio? And they, they definitively answered the question, the liberalism cannot be popular on talk radio. I'm not really sure why. But well, they
0: kind of they went bankrupt.
1: They so did. They so did. Part
0: of it was just poor financial management. Yeah. But, but it's an ongoing question people ask me all the time: What? what why conservatives dominate talk radio? And I'm like,
1: That's right. And there lo-
0: are flippant answers, which are that you know they are shouting, they are entertaining, they right. are appealing to our basis instincts of their their fans. And I mean, that's the caricature way to answer it. Just like, because they're jerks willing to do anything to get high ratings, that's That's the jerky way to answer it. It But there have to be smarter ways to answer why uh, liberalism cannot thrive in the same way or the left, whatever, on That's right.
1: You know, there's a demographic reason, too. I mean, David Foster Wallace has an essay on this, on that very question. I don't know if you're familiar with this.
0: Uh, What is the name of that David Foster Wallace?
1: Uh, It's in a supposedly funny thing, fun thing I'll never do again. Mm -hmm. Um, The the essay title is Escaping Me, but it's the third largest radio conservative radio talk show host in the la market this is in the late 90s and he tries to approach this guy as a performer and not as an ideologue Mm -hmm. to see how he reaches his audience what are his kinds of styles of of content generation for three full hours by himself alone in a studio i mean Mm -hmm. could you imagine trying to fill three hours entertainingly to an audience of five million people every single day, I mean it's an incredible amount of content and to also be entertaining and maybe a little funny too. So he approaches it from that standpoint, from a production standpoint, it's quite good. Um, Both in terms of a method of interviewing um, as well as being charitable towards your subject, I think it's worth a look. And he tries to answer the question too in terms of is it just so happened that drivers, people driving long haul or people stuck in traffic, happen to have um, an inkling towards conservative causes? Drivers. Yeah, there's there's a, a class sense, I mean, a class demographic perhaps. Yeah. Um, I don't know if there's anything final on that, but that, that's at least his answer. Um, and it's a worth, it's a good essay worth checking out.
0: And obviously, he's a really good writer.
1: Yeah, and it's fun. <laughs>
0: yeah, um, I want to ask you one last question yeah. and then we'll segue into your presentation. And Vicky, this will sort of pop back up right when he touches this. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what is the difference between conservatism and populism?
1: Uh, great question, so I actually answered try to answer excuse me ask that question of myself in the presentation and preview uh, just a preview of coming attractions I would say um, lots and nothing mm-hmm. that there are both conservatives who are populists as well as populists who are not conservatives, and there are also conservatives who despise populism, mm-hmm. and they have all made a home within conservatism, and the question is is always for me not, is conservatism going to, do they disagree with each other? Because my, my the idea that I would suggest is that conservatives are always in a natural state of flux and coalition and kind of thumbing their nose at other conservatives or holding their breath and voting for candidates that they don't particularly like, but they're better than Hillary Clinton, um, theoretically. It's not
0: that true of liberals as well, but plug
1: in? That's right, that's if right. That but it's not nearly good. as organized as conservatives have been. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of them do so for populist reasons and some of those do so for elitist reasons.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I just I think it's an interesting question right now because with Trump, we always refer to him as a populist over and over again, right? Yeah. Um, and as a demagogue yeah. and in his inclinations and so on. Um, and the populist label fits well in terms of his rhetoric. I mean, it's not about what he does, it's about what he says that makes him a populist, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I wrote an essay on populism where I find it really difficult to define a kind of political program to populism, but populism is instead a kind of style of speech.
0: That's why, yeah, that's what works particularly well.
1: Precisely. And
0: conservatism does not work so well for him, right?
1: Um, Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, mean, he's super conservative on taxes, and he's really conservative, at least as far as the zeitgeist is concerned on radical Islam, Um, so-called. And immigration, yeah, but, there are uh, but large, arguable, yeah.
0: But, I mean, he may or may not actually care about some of those things. He cares yeah, about the taxes. that's
1: the good question yeah. too. Yeah. Yeah,
0: but there are other areas in which he's really not conservative, and it's a crisis for conservatives and for Republicans, right? Because he's not a Republican right. either in certain ways.
1: I guess what I would say is is that I don't think that conservatism, I don't think that conservatism as a belief system exists doctrinally without a prefix. So he may not be conservative right. now. Right. But that may change. Yeah. Just as it has on lots of issues.
0: Okay, great. Thank you. Well, sure. Thank you. You're gears.
1: really good at that. Oh. Okay. You're really good interviewer. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. Fast. Yeah. Thank I you. To help you <laughs> okay, it's great. really good. <laughs> you Thanks. Sure. I'll try to naturally segue from that. Thank you all for being here. This is a real honor um, for me. Um so a lot of this work is really derived from an interest I had in graduate school in what Professor Hendershot was doing, but also um, the first person I ever knew to own an iPhone, which is Ed Schiappa. first iPhone I ever saw was in the hands of Ed Schiappa. But he wrote a book um, called Defining Reality about how what we're looking at when we're looking at things, how we define the very thing that we're looking at. And much of this presentation is kind of a series of homages um, to, to that book. Um, so the first question I've try to figure out is what are we looking at when we're looking at conservatism and after Trump's election, there has been this really kind of uh, melodramatic hand-wringing among some professional historians as well as lots of other folks who are wondering, is Trump changing conservatism? And there's a recent Atlantic article that says that conservatism is basically in the midst of being redefined, according to a paper presented at some political science conference, a a really well-known conservative historian who writes more popular books on the subject, named Rick Perlstein, just wrote this essay in the New York Times Magazine that he's got the whole thing wrong. That his entire three thousand-page trilogy on conservatism has just missed the fact that they're all a bunch of racists, essentially. Um, but this this sort of I, I hope I'm not <laughs> overgeneralizing. I think that's a fair assessment of that essay. In any case, this is not a new phenomenon either amongst conservatives or amongst people looking at conservatism conservatism. conservatism, the the definition of conservatism has been in flux the entire time, I would suggest, whether it's Trump's election, or the burgeoning Tea Party, or the downfall of McCain, or if we look all the way back at this handsome devil, his name is Frank Meyer. Frank Meyer is sort of a fascinating and overlooked figure um, in American politics. He was a communist, in fact, he was the highest ranking, among the highest ranking American communists who was stationed, quite literally, in the United States, and he taught at the largest communist training school which was in downtown Chicago in south side Chicago and he had kind of a come to Jesus moment and converted to the right for a variety of reasons that aren't really relevant here. But he was so concerned about his health after Trotsky was murdered in Mexico City that he stayed up all night long working and would sleep during the day in upstate New York when his family was awake because he was really fearful that axemen or gunmen, Stalin's henchmen, were going to come get him. Anyway, he is kind of one of the forerunners of the kind of three stool, three legs of the stool of conservatism. But he was incredibly worried about a populist in his own age. In 1967 and 68, he saw. Um, conservatives rallying behind George Wallace, and he was incredibly fearful, and he thought that Wallace was a demagogue, he thought that Wallace was an outsider, he thought that Wallace was not conservative, and yet at the same time, here is this guy, here is this theorist of conservatism, who knows communism and knows conservatism about as intimately as we can expect, who sees somebody rallying conservatives as a conservative, but he doesn't think that they're conservative, right? So there's this kind of semantic um, impossibility of a final definition. He says, the root of the problem is the original coalition. So conservatives form in in roughly the 1950s as this phalanx of people who disagree with one another, as we were noting earlier, whether it's religious folks or libertarians or anti-communists or um, people who think that the communists are putting fluoride in our water or states-rightists or you name it, there's monarchists, it is what one historian called a Baroque strangeness to the early right, and they had to figure out how to kind of mainstream, and Meyer was a part of that. But he says, and if I'll note here in this, this highlighted paragraph, he says, when they surface the original strains, those of us who attack certain positions as alien to conservatism are inevitably criticized on the grounds that those with whom we are attacking are also enemies of liberalism. And this is the same thing that's happening now, 40 years later, to the never-Trumpers, people who are saying, well we believe in limited government and they're being called all sorts of names by Trumpist conservatives, and so perhaps conservatism is in a moment of evolution. That doesn't mean they're not necessarily conservatives. And then this this idea of conservatism, the meaning as being in flux and very much a part of the media that conservatives consume and not some sort of hoary, existential idea is noted in an early issue of National Review, November 1956, Revilo Oliver, hell of a name, goes to Memphis, Tennessee, to a national states' rights conference and says that he sees one single conservative blaze, but also divergent flames, each jetting upward apart from its fellows, flickering a moment and vanishing into the night. It sort of reminds me when folks talk about conservatism as as changing, and we're being surprised by that, as the moment that Lloyd Christmas discovers that we had landed on the moon. Right, the idea that there is multiple conservatism, where the conservative is changing, should not be a surprise after Trump, after the Tea Party, after McCain, after Romney, after anybody, because that seems to me to be its natural state. To use a kind of different 90s movie reference, it's more like the end of a movie that none of you except maybe y'all have seen. Uh, The end of the remake of The Thomas Crown Affair starring Rene Russo and and Pierce Brosnan Pick it up at local blockbusters. Um, It is a good film, it's a good flick. Anyway, the end of it, a bunch of people disguised as bank robbers but also disguised as Rene Magritte's son of man with bowler hats on, bolo hats, I always forget the name bowler hats on are walking around and, they, and the authorities can't figure out who is responsible for the heist because they all look the same but you can't tell which one is the real one. That to me seems like the better metaphor for conservatives is that they're all wearing, in a sense, a similar costume but it's really difficult to tell who the real one is or if, in my point would be, Perhaps there isn't a real one. I'm not gonna show the video because we're short on time, but you get, the, you get the gist. So what I would suggest is that conservatism, defining it as a doctrine, is a bankrupt approach. That conservatism is kind of a cultural, identity-based phenomenon that I choose to call a political language. So I'll briefly take you through what I mean by that. There's lots and different articles, especially in the, the burgeoning behavioral science literature that says that conservatism is all manner of bad things. For instance, this meta-analysis that was has been cited 25,000 times, according to the database I looked at the other day, says that conservatism is people who are really afraid to die, people who think that the system they live in is unstable, people who are not open to experience, people who are dogmatists and are intolerant of ambiguity, people who prefer order, structure, closure, integrative complexity, and they fear being threatened or losing their lives or their loved ones' lives, right? So really unstable, people you wouldn't wanna hang out with, right, you certainly don't know any liberals who fit any of those characteristics. And so there is this kind of essentialist approach to conservatism that says that it is a stable set of beliefs and characteristics, and this is among the founding bits of literature of this line of, of inquiry. But conservatives also say the same thing, right? When you go to professional conservatives like Ted Cruz here pictured grunting through defining conservatism at CPAC. Um, Cruz and others would say, well, no, conservatism is just this one thing, but if you look at the history of American conservatism, you see on the one side, at least, the traditionalists like Falwell, who favor God, moral order, hierarchical stability, and Goldwater, more or less a patron saint of the libertarian side, favoring individual freedom, unregulated markets, and social flexibility, and I don't think there's a way that you can reconcile the fact that the social traditionalists mutually refuse the Goldwater types because there's no more revolutionary force in in society or politics or economics than capitalism, And so it's incredibly difficult to look at what is happening in cities around the country or South Korea or southern China and say that those are not revolutionary activities that are changing villages across the country, and so the idea of tradition, social order, a watchful god, are are difficult to reconcile with capitalism, so what I would say in the answer to Heather's question earlier, is populism conservative, excuse me, is conservatism populist, elitist? Is it reactionary, is it religious, is it revolutionary, is it racist, is it egalitarian? I think the answer to all these questions for the time being is yes, it's all those things, it's all those things and more, right? They have made lots of different types of people for cultural reasons and for enemies, common enemy reasons, have made the home amongst the right. So what I would then say is that conservatism is this kind of, not even a big tent, but kind of a big top, right? It's almost a kind of circus arrangement of the many different types of people that call themselves conservatives. Crunchy conservatives, reformists, bull mooses, Tim the Beaver conservatives, progressive conservatives, I made one of those up, Sam's Club, Walmart, heroic, you name it, and then we have the traditional ones up top, like traditionalism, libertarian, paleo, fiscal, religious, add Trumpists to the list, add Reagan to the list, add Buckley to the list, and it goes on and on and on. And so there's a few that don't quite make the cut, like severely conservative, which uh, Romney trotted out in 12 and didn't make the cut. Nevertheless, there seems to be a kind of real interest in being ideologically promiscuous amongst the right that I find fascinating. So I I would liken conservatism to a shape-shifting approach. Not necessarily sent from hell to dine on flesh, but certainly shape-shifty in this sense. They began as new conservatives, which was the first title um, that Russell Kirk and others who were traditionalists assumed. They became Goldwaterites. Uh, They became consumed by racial efforts, busing and whatnot, anti-civil rights. They became Reaganites. And then they became compassionate conservatives with George Bush, Republican revolutionaries with Gingrich, neocons under George W. Bush, Tea Partiers in 10, and then Trumpists in 16. And if you look at the series of the last, let's say, few presidential elections, Conservatism in 2002 looks absolutely nothing like conservatism in 2010, which looks absolutely nothing, which looks strangely dissimilar from conservatism in 2016, and yet they all won, right? And so there hasn't been this kind of fracture moment, there's only these fusion moments around victories, but those victories are at the behest of very different kinds of causes. Um, So the question about how this then happens to me is interesting, which is, how do these really strange bedfellows stay together? I would suggest one way is the way they understand the world around them and who they are opposed to, in other words, enemy creation, first the the anti-communist, and now perhaps uh, a global holy war. Um, But I would also say that they begin to think of themselves very clearly. So Buckley, who I spent some time with once said in a book in the 70s that he knows who is a conservative less surely than he knows who is a liberal in his characteristic style. He says, spin him around like a top and blindfold him. He could find a liberal, but he can't find a conservative because under the pressures at hand, they have had to invite all kinds of people into their ranks. He also said, which I really love, that if somebody really asked him a lot and said, come on, man, answer the question, who is a conservative? He would give them Richard Weaver's, Conservatism is the paradigm of essences towards which the phenomenology of the world is in continuing approximation with kind of a wry grin, because what the hell does that mean, All right? Uh, so I think then of conservatism not as a doctrine, but as more like a fan culture. You learn to adorn yourself in certain ways, you learn to speak in certain ways, you learn to perform in certain ways, walk in certain ways talk in certain ways, sing the song in certain ways, and that is the way that I identify it. And those identity commitments have doctrinal commitments with them, but they are not fully divested from those commitments. So, for example, if you learn to speak a language, right? There's a a part of learning that language that comes with it. Learning its different dialects, learning its different emphases, learning its different cultural appropriations. And here I would say the same thing for conservatism is that it is about its argumentative stock and its stock is varied. There has not yet been a major fracture point where, the stop, where there's secessionist movements and the Trumpists go one way and the Tea Partyers go another way. They still exist under the same umbrella term. And so for the time being, both performances are ostensibly Conservative. There was a moment, like three days before the election, when I was reading articles, and you probably were too, that said, you know, as soon as Hillary wins, it's basically the end of the Republican Party. Conservatism is going down too, because the Trumpists are going to secede, and then the Libertarians aren't going to know what to do. And where's the religious right fit in between those two? So we're looking at the end of an era here, people. Right? And (laughs) now here we are, giving the same talk. Um, And so then I treat doctrinal differences and differences in dialect, right? In terms of the speakers of the language. And so we see the common ways that we adorn ourselves in in our culture, or if I could identify somebody who was a tourist in Charleston pretty easily, and perhaps you could do so uh, up here in this different locality, but we also know the certain signs, the decorum of the Tea Party with the Gadsden flag, with the very traditional um, now tired refrains about liberal media or global warming and global whining, uh, about reporters all being biased. They have a a very traditional iconography, which is another unifying element of the coalition. They can get behind iconographic pursuits in the same way that Christians who disagree with one another get behind similar cultures with similar iconographic pursuits. And it's even, I don't make it seem like it's a big deal, like tailgating is, right? It could be as as everyday and normal and quotidian as this woman looking at her phone wearing a socialism sucks t-shirt. It's just part of everyday life, this sort of adornment. My favorite one is this, which many of you will recognize as a Tinder profile. My aunt, 50, God bless her, she's living her truth, she's on Tinder, she's meeting guys. And this is one of the guys she met, I don't think she went out with him, but this guy from Minnesota, he says of himself, I'm white, I'm straight, I'm conservative, I'm a rebel, and you can have my gun when you pry my cold dead fingers around it. Judge me if you want. If you don't like it, you can kiss my free America ass. A few things. One, free America ass is a a night coin of phrase. Two, he has a shirt on that says bump and grind. And three, there's a child right behind him. Right? So it's a really classic Tinder profile. What was that? (laughs) What's that? Swipe left? That's why I've left. Yeah. I don't know. I think she might have slaved left. In any case, the question then is, if I treat conservatism as a language, where do the parts of the language come from? Where do the key words come from? And that's where I've become really interested in conservative media. In particular, the canon of great books that conservatives have invented, right? They have given these books their canonicity so to speak, um, and all of these books are written between roughly 1945, the end of World War II, and 1964 when Goldwater runs and loses the presidency in, in magnanimous and huge fashion, right? He, he wrote a, a little note to McGovern in 72 that said, uh, Dear George, if you're gonna lose, lose big. Love, Barry, This is a great, great little note. In any case, uh, the conservative canon I say, is a set of texts that any community links directly to its identity in the same way that the United States perhaps is linked textually to the Constitution, right? Like Marx with the Marxists or the Bible. Uh, For Christians, these are considered timeless, prophetic, prescient texts. They can speak to timeless pursuits as well as timely pursuits. And then the The communal buy-in is there in the sense that everybody widely acknowledges that these are the documents that are the fundaments of our identity. These are the documents that I have gone through, conservatives talking about conservatism, right? How conservatives have talked about conservatism in terms of their origins, their origins and ideas. And these are roughly the 10 texts that I say have had a kind of perpetual power amongst conservatives since 1945-ish, right? These are kind of the top 10. and Amongst these, there are some that are more important than others, but these are all books that books have been written about, like this one, Reading the Right Books, A Guide for the Intelligent Conservative, and this kind of movement culture that's organized around canons and texts and encouraging people to read the texts is what I'm gonna talk about for a minute next. But you'll note, a few of these books are more or less famous, like The Road to Serfdom is, is justifiably famous. God and Man at Yale is still relatively famous. Whitaker Chambers' Witness was nationally famous when it came out, perhaps not, not so much more now, uh, in the conscience of a conservative. But the rest of these, besides maybe capitalism and freedom, are pretty obscure to non-conservatives. But this is very much, these are very much a part of the social capital of conservatism, is knowing these books or at least having read some of their parts or being able to talk about them intelligently. There are some second order books that I think are worth including because they show up on lists that conservatives obsessively make about these books time and again, but not with the kind of frequency as the top 10 that I made, and also not with the kind of same reverence. So what I, you'll note I haven't included a few that stand out. Anne Rand doesn't make the cut in large part because there's a vociferous disagreement amongst conservatives as to whether or not she is conservative, and none of those texts are subject to that kind of criticism. There's other really famous books like Phyllis Schlafly's A Choice Not an Echo that are not continually cited by conservatives, they sort of peaked 40 or 50 years ago and then they've more or less been lost except to professional historians. All of these are still taught at conferences, right? And this is the idea then that they are, it's not that they were born into the canon, right? They were canonized. And so the movement culture is organized around texts producing, disseminating, and reinforcing a reverential relationship with these texts. And they really make sure of doing that because there's hundreds of millions of dollars at stake on encouraging these texts. So for instance, these four organizations are just four among a few. Uh, The cumulative total of their budget is, um, according to a a study a few years ago, about $550 million. And each and every one of the instances of of production, dissemination, and reverence of those 10 texts Um, that currently happen, that have happened since the 70s, and I assume will happen in the future, is funded and organized by typically one of these organizations, the Media Research Center, the Young America's Foundation, ISI, the Intercollegiate Studies Institute, and of course the big dog is the, the Heritage Foundation in this. So these can be, as these kinds of reinforcement of a canonical, reverential, biblical relationship can be as easy as a Twitter poll. Right? So this is from ISI's Twitter feed, in fact, yesterday, which just goes through if you wanted to click on it and says, which of the conservative thinkers that were in the canon I just listed are you most like? Are you more of a Russell Kirk thinker or are you more of a Bill Buckley type thinker? Right, Or it can be a little more in depth, it could be a film that Young America's Foundation has produced for use at Republican clubs on campus, right, college conservatives, Young Americans for Liberty clubs, perhaps churches, perhaps you just really wanna screen this with you and your friends on a Friday night. In any case, it's interesting that it's produced by somebody named Stephen K. Bannon, I've never heard of that guy, but Marvin, uh, Mark Levin, Jonah Goldberg, Michelle Malkin, you'll see some, some kind of very familiar leading lights of the conservative movement who are part of this. And then they will produce a video about how great these particular books are and how they're living these books amidst the horrors of the Obama age or something like that.
0: What's that film called?
1: Uh, this film. Uh, I'll have to look it up, I I must have cut it off. I'll find it though, there's plenty of them. This is is a dime a dozen kind of film. Um, In any case, these can also be um, something to wear, right, in in terms of the fan culture. Everybody, well most people will know the buttons, extremism in defense of liberty is no vice, which is Goldwater's famous line from his acceptance address at the Cow Palace in San Francisco in 64, but Other obscure kinds of currency come from these texts too. So this phrase, don't let them immanentize the eschaton, is a phrase that Bill Buckley made famous in lots of places, but especially when he ran for mayor of New York City in the mid 60s. But it's taken from another canonical book by Eric Vogelin, who escaped the Nazis in Vienna and came to the United States um, and was a religious conservative and thought that immanentize the eschaton was just an easier way to say Hell on Earth, I'm not really sure why. In any case, he, he wasn't the most gifted or uh, monosyllabic writer. But it was Buckley's homage to, to Vogelin, which was then paid homage by conservatives like David Brooks or William Crystal, who remember buying these buttons and wearing them in high school, or wearing them when they were on the debate team in college. All right. These books also give conservatives what is important in terms of building a culture building a culture of people who can agree to be called the same thing while believing in very different things, and that is an origin story. right? So conservatives can have similar heroes, similar villains, believe different things roughly in terms of military or whether there should be prayer in schools or whatever the issue is, but they can also have the same identity in the sense that they came from the same place. So you see conservative historians like, um, this is actually from Alfred Regnery, who is the son of one of the guys who produced and published a lot of the conservative books that I talk about. He says, Hayek, Mises, Buckley, Chambers, and Kirk, Regnery mused, ignited the conservative cause with books, and over the coming decades, books were at the heart of the growth of the movement. Lee Edwards, uh, the house historian at the Heritage Foundation, says much the same thing in his book about the conservative books. Right after Reagan was elected, one of the first speeches he gives is at the conservative political action conference, and he said, virtually the same thing. That his election was only made possible, and then he began to name check all of the members, all the writers from canonical literature. You'll find that they have, they not just, it's not me um, using a religious framework and importing that on the way that conservatives relate to their texts. In fact, they use the same religious language themselves. Pat Buchanan called the conscience of a conservative, the voice in the desert, a sermon of fire and brimstone. The New Testament, we read it, memorized it, quoted it, and Buckley agreed. He said it it held a kind of scriptural authority in the community. I don't have time for this, but you'll you'll note that this is it this idea of common text as the birth of conservatism as a culture, as an identity, is replicated in lots of places, not just in print and not just on buttons, but in speeches that are really tucked outside of the mainstream. So this is David Keane. David Keene is a, a foundational mid century conservative. He was the president of the American Conservative Union, he's the president of um, the Conservative Political Action Conference for many years and then he just recently finished a stint as the president with Wayne LaPierre of the NRA. So he's, he's well positioned. In any case, one of the things that ISI does is that it funds speaker series at colleges that have known to be friendly for conservative ideas. And so this is a speech where they flew in um, Newt Gingrich and other people like David Keene into the Citadel in Charleston, South Carolina in a course on conservatism. And so the ISI would then sponsor a video series, which handily is on YouTube, and then David Keene will recount for Citadel Cadets, or somebody at Hillsdale College in Michigan, or somewhere else, the story of conservatism, and then re, kind of re-acculturating a new generation into their own great books tradition. Um, other ways that they do this is that they encourage conservatives are financially encouraging young conservatives to recruit more members, right? Which, which every good organization needs. But one of the ways they do that is that if you start a conservative organization on your campus at MIT here, and you recruit a certain number of people, then you will get an all-expenses-paid ticket to the Reagan Ranch for a summer at the Reagan Ranch. And you know what you do with a summer at the Reagan Ranch? You go through guided study groups of the great books. And so you can study the great books with conservative professors or luminaries like Ann Coulter. Right, we'll we'll make a drop in, meet the students, talk about um, her favorite book, which is Whitaker Chambers' Witness, and talk about what it meant to her life. Okay. And you can get, and it's financially incentivized by ISI. The ISI also will do something like the Order and Liberty retreat, which they did in the summer of two thousand five, with reading groups on Witness, The Road to Serfdom, Ideas Have Consequences, The Conservative Mind. These things take on kind of, there's an amazing subculture, co-culture, I'm not sure what the, f- the correct word is, of these kinds of organized study groups around a select group of texts. For instance, this is just a list of organized study groups around Witness, Whitaker Chambers' Witness, for just a few years.
0: Can you tell
1: them who Whitaker Chambers is? Whitaker Chambers is, uh, the, was an American communist like Frank Meyer, he also worked at the State Department he had, um, and said that he was working at the behest of Stalin and the Soviet government to secretly ferret out um, sensitive State Department texts. And then he came clean and said that there, the entirety of the government had been infiltrated by Soviet spies. If there, anybody watches The Americans, it's basically that, except in real life. Um, and it became a, a very famous court hearing during the McCarthy era, kind of the pre, pre-McCarthy era, 48-ish, um, when he accused Alger Hiss, who was a ranking member of the State Department and was president of a series of philanthropic organizations of being the right-hand man of Stalin. Um, and to my knowledge, um, he, his accusations have held up really well. He was pilloried in the press by the liberal press, and, and there is a, there is an argument to be made that the conservatives' revolt about the so-called mainstream media, the birth of the lamestream media argument, may be in the treatment of the press, the way the press treated Whitaker Chambers. Um, in any case, that's, that's who Whitaker Chambers is. And he's also kind of a martyr figure because he was, um, Buckley thought of him as having what he said was like a Tolstoyan macabre. That he, had, he said he had this air of death about him and he died shortly thereafter as a very tortured figure. sort of a tortured artist. In any case, um, Chambers was the first one to call the Soviet empire evil, right? In his book Witness, he talked about evil, communism as evil many of Reagan's speechwriters were, could quote, witness by, uh, from memory, and so could Ronald Reagan. And so Tony Dolan, who wrote the Evil Empire speech, was in fact a devotee of Whitaker Chambers, and a straight line can be drawn from Chambers talking about communism as evil to Tony Dolan and Ronald Reagan talking about Chambers and then writing that in the the Evil Empire speech. And the same is true of David Frum and Michael Gerson, who were Bush's speech writers in the axis of evil speech. They were all devotees of Chambers. In fact, in the first few months of the Bush administration in 2001, pre 9 11 the White House held a posthumous 100th birthday party for Whitaker Chambers, who would have turned 100 uh, early in July 2001, right? And this is also, for those of you who are thinking, you know, well, what is the link between then and now, right? Trump doesn't read, (laughs) Trump doesn't go to study groups, Trump is a lifelong Democrat, he's notoriously anti-ideological, and that's fine. But it seems as if the rest of the administration is not. And especially, I would point to lots of folks like Betty Betsy DeVos and Rick Perry, but especially. Mike Pence. Mike Pence is among the politicians who, like a Tony Dolan or like a David Frum, um, has been schooled in the tradition that I'm talking about, is is on more than a casual basis with the text that we are referencing here. And so this is an interview that Mike Pence actually gave to the Indianapolis Star when he was an incredibly unpopular governor back in Indiana. He said that he hasn't taken a vacation in the last 25 years without a Russell Kirk book under his arm. And there's a range of other people, this is where he goes on the name checking, from Hayek to Milton Friedman to others, but Kirk is really his flavor, right? It just makes you want to go on vacation with Mike Pence that much more, I get it, I get it. Um, And in the same sense, too, we see this kind of, this reverential rhetoric about these books in the ways that Kirk, again, is compared, this is from a National Review photo essay just from last week, where Kirk is compared to the American founders. The American founders did for America what Kirk, Buckley, and others have done for American conservatism, and thus they deserve our continued fealty and study and memorization um, and so forth. So, quick close. I would say that conservatism in many senses, is what it is as a coherent culture because of its relationship with a certain set of books, that those books have given it the, the means to define its identity, but also to contest its boundaries. And then secondly, I think that canonization of very dissimilar texts like Witness or like The Road to Serfdom all the way to Goldwater and Buckley's text has given them a kind of ideological flexibility to where there is a a really wide uh, boundaries on the path of conservatism, and so long as you can reasonably slalom within between those boundaries, you have a pretty great argument to say that either being pro-immigration or anti-immigration is a fundamentally conservative principle because you can always link it back to, to founding documents. So I'm not trying to say that conservatism is Uh, meaningless in the sense that it could be communist one day and and socialist and capitalist the next day because there is no communist defense um, as conservative here. There is no atheist defense as conservative here. Nevertheless, it applies a really wide degree of ideological room for maneuver that I think Trump is manipulating. Thank you all very much for this opportunity.
0: conservatism is a kind of fan culture, um, and I was wondering, like, talking about like um, iconography, and conservatism, um, and uh, canonization of certain figures and things like that. It seems like the founding fathers themselves have been sort of like fetishized now by a lot of um, the current conservative party, like to the point where there's like Glenn Beck does like yeah. I don't know, like founding father like cosplay almost.
1: <laughs> and, like, <laughs> totally. For
0: a while, the set on his show back when he was on Fox News had these sort of like. Very stylized paintings of Thomas Jefferson and George Washington so with, like, in the background. And like, when did that um, start? Did that start with the Tea Party? Like, is it just a matter of like of making them icons, or like, is there anything deeper there? Or
1: man. What a great question! I don't think that I don't think that I'm totally qualified to answer that because I'm not sure. I can say a few things. One, the cosplay idea is a really good one and one that I haven't really thought of, but it's totally perfect because if you saw somebody who obviously wasn't being paid by the city of Boston to look like Paul Revere, um, but was dressed like Paul Revere and was here. I mean, I would, I would put a lot of money on it. That person was a self-identified conservative, right? So the kind of fetishization of that. Um, it typically happens, it definitely happens in the last 50 years because it's only after a series of these books, in particular Frank Meyer's books come out that really say that the Constitution and the founders are the kind of epitome of what they called Western civilization, which was a code word for Judeo-Christian civilization, and they really began talking about the founders almost in a sense of like apostles of Jesus, right? And so there is this, this democratic, Christian democratic framework that exists from, and they can link it back to the ancients, that now we have inherited, and these are the men who have given it to us. And so the cosplay in that sense makes sense because If you are an originalist about the way you interpret the Constitution, and you actually want to inhabit the brains of the people who wrote it, then what better way to get into character, you know what I mean? Um, But in terms of the timeline, I would really be speculating too much to say, you know, this is the event. And if somebody else knows that better, like when did conservatives start dressing up like Thomas Jefferson, I'd love to hear it. But I don't know off the top. That's a really great question. Yeah. I'm
2: gonna ask a completely unfair question in terms of of your prior preparation, but it it seems kind of, you know, Saul Alinsky and a lot of people in the left in the '60s, you know, uh, taught in terms of movements that the action is in the reaction. Yeah. And so that certain demonstrations were designed to provoke the boot of the man coming down uh, to demonstrate the oppressiveness of the state. Yeah. And it seems to me that there's a recent trend, uh, with Coulter at Berkeley being the most, the most recent example, of where uh, conservatives. Using the term very broadly, or provocative conservatives in particular, uh, are deliberately going to college campuses to provoke a response. And I think actually the the response they're hoping for is what what happened at uh, Middlebury or what happened at, at Berkeley, so that they could play the victim yeah. and and claim hypocrisy on the behalf of, of uh, those institutions. And that this that this reveals the uh, true nature of campus liberalism. That's right. And I just wonder if, you, you know, I'm sure you've been reading and hearing about this stuff, if you, how you've been processing it.
1: Yeah, to me that's very much in keeping with, with the, the manner in which conservatives have protested or have talked about colleges and universities since Buckley, right? So among the founding texts is a 24-year-old guy saying, look at what's happening at Yale. These people are atheists, communists, but right in the Yale charter, it is about making young men in the image of Jesus or, or something like that, right? That there's this been abandonment of the hallowed ideals that we have to get back to. And it's also, um, I, don't, I don't use the word reactionary in that sense, but it's a, it's a, it's a countermeasure In the sense that conservatives from Buckley on, in many cases, are reacting to the dominant, right, like they are the second fiddle, right? And so, in that case, it is about revealing this big, larger superstructure of oppression that exists on American college campuses under the guise of the hypocritical guise of political correctness. That seems to me to be a a really typical conservative thing to do over the past 60 or 70 years i I see the messengers like milo and others as being different although as a separate point and another project i'm working on is about conservative trolls and i'll bring this up just to to maybe incite some debate too but one of the things that i'm interested in is whether that kind of antagonistic politics is somehow written into the dna of american conservatives the kind of provocation, right, and so there's, and we would think of that now in the internet age as trolling, um, but that's what Coulter and Limbaugh and many others have been doing for a long time, but one of the things that Milo does, that Ann Coulter, Milo Yiannopoulos, I'm not friends with him, um, and Ann Coulter and others do is that they criticize from a position of precarity, right, so Ann Coulter will consistently call Democrats hysterical, emotional, at one point in one of her books she says they throw like girls, right? She's using these kinds of anti-feminist positions, but there she is, a national public figure on national TV, bombastically declaring anything is very much a feminist thing to do. And so she's in this kind of contradictory space where to attack her is to then reaffirm her marginal status, which she is in fact exploiting. And so Milo Yiannopoulos, uh, as an out gay man, flying the, the pride flag can do much the same thing. You come at him, it's not just that you're silencing him, you're silencing uh, an embattled minority, right? Uh, a sexual minority, and so in that instance, he has a kind of credibility that a Rush Limbaugh with his cigar smoking would not, right? And to do it on a college campus also seems to be a very typical thing to do. Please. Well, I would,
0: I would agree that there is some play, game playing going on here, and I'm and, and, and we'll always, uh, I just can't believe when I hear conservatives talking about their silencing the media when the, the, literally the best-selling books in America are by Fine. Ann Coulter, Rush Limbaugh, Dinesh D'Souza, Bill O'Reilly, like, you know, silence, right? Or a Sarah Palin? you know, when she had her own uh, show know. on TV. She had a couple TV shows, she had best-selling books, and she
1: yeah. was silencing me. So I, I agree that there's that
0: game plan. but I would push back it, to some extent, and I can't believe I'm defending Ann Coulter, but again, <laughs> what, what Ed was saying to me extent that uh, Yeah, Ann Coulter played her her cards around this event, but was there a appropriate way that she could have gone to Berkeley to give a talk at the invitation of a conservative group? Should she have just declined? I mean, was there a a, you know was it inappropriate for her even say yes to this invitation in the first place, regardless of all the drama or of of you know Charles Murray's being invited to Middlebury? He's like, yes, I'll come talk. I mean, I, I I do think there was a genuine. Desire among the conservatives who invited these people to hear from them?
2: No, I don't. I think it's it's all strategy and tactics. They can read her books. They can watch her on TV. Bringing her to campus is the provocative act. And from what I understand, you know, she's saying I've been silenced, and the UC Berkeley campus
1: administrators are saying, No, we have not silenced you. Mm -hmm. Right. We're doing.
0: Yeah, they tried to schedule after the end of classes. Right. Which is not an ideal time, I think, for a guest speaker to come. I mean, I, I, just, I guess I'm just wondering to what extent we want to say, well, yeah, it is actually difficult for conservative groups to have a guest speaker on campus, and, like, Charles Murray wanted to talk about a book about divisions in America and how we don't understand each other. Right. And... You're right. I mean, I, I actually,
2: you know, from a free speech yeah. standpoint, I absolutely think that yeah. you should not prohibit speakers of that sort. Yeah. I'm really talking in terms of strategy and tactics. They don't really care if she speaks or not. By they, I mean that conservative organization. You know, they don't, they're not really hoping for dialogue. They're hoping for a fight. They're hoping for their, right. a, a reaction as there was in Middlebury that they can then use to uh, play the victim's task. I do not think it's about intellectual exchange of ideas at all.
0: Well, to, I, I, although I, I
2: defended the intellectual yes, exchange. Yes, right.
0: I, I guess I would... Uh, Guardedly concede that you might be right, because Coulter is not going to come in with deep intellectual ideas. And she's like,
1: oh, you're right.
0: And favorite book is Whitaker-Chief-Person.
1: what? I know. That's strange. With
0: Murray, I would, I would be less inclined to agree. I mean, I do, I do think there are conservatives on campus who want to be able to have their guest speakers in and not be pelted, and and they're having difficulty. Yeah, and
1: I think that's wrong.
0: And that's, yeah. I'm sure you're from the... You're referring to the story on
1: the front page of the Times today. Is this what you're referring Actually, to? Actually, I haven't seen that. Oh, yeah, I haven't either. The story on the front page of the Times today that's about this very
0: issue that's essentially saying um, that, and I, I'm sure you have an opinion on this, but that, uh, that has one really interesting line buried in the article after the jump, that um, basically conservatives see that they've sort of lost the country on on issues of gay marriage, and uh, sin, they've kind of the same sex marriage.
1: I don't know what that means, And it's like we'll now see this first as, like their last
0: hope of a call and it is a strategic decision um, to use the First Amendment specifically as something they can use to organize and unite people when other social issues have sort of fallen to the wayside. What I would argue is that it doesn't really matter if it's uh, a genuine interest in free speech or if it is a strategy decision because the liberals seem to really fall into the same trap every time. Um, and I, I do think it is a lose-lose scenario when you don't let people speak on campus. It doesn't matter what your motivation yeah. is, it's just you're gonna, yes. it's, it's a self-perpetuating trap that liberals need to fall
1: into. And to that point, it's a win-win for conservatives on campus because if, <laughs> if she cancels, then look at the hip- hypocritical, non-free speech, tyrannical liberals. And if she speaks, to Ed's point, one of the things that I'm interested in in terms of this trolling before trolls is the sense in which we enjoy seeing our opponents inflamed, right, to the impossibility of a reasonable discourse in a world in which I really just want to piss you off and enjoy pissing you off, which is, which is what trolling is, and which is why I would suspect that the reason that conservative groups invite her, and to some extent Charles Murray, because had he not written The Bell Curve, um, which drives liberals crazy for a good reason, <laughs> that they could have selected any number of conservative speakers who are not as well known as Charles Murray and it would have had not nearly the reaction but the intellectual discourse would have been as high or higher. So to some extent it is about the schadenfreude, it is about seeing the pain in others or the irritation in others and that's why Coulter and Murray get invites um, as opposed to somebody that none of us have ever heard of. Um, To that end though, the point about the times thing, I, I don't know if conservatives would really agree at least they're too hard-headed to say, well, yeah, we've lost these issues because we're still talking about Obamacare, we're still talking about abortion politics, we're still talking about racial quotas and affirmative action, and of course, we're always gonna be talking about religion as long as there's conservatives in the United States. So the idea that they've lost the culture war, writ large, to me, is is a hard sell. The idea that perhaps they've lost on the issue of, of gay marriage, and maybe some element of sexual politics. Yeah, that's a fair one, but I don't think they're looking at the First Amendment as like the final stand, because they've got a lot of other irons in the fire to really mix a lot of metaphors. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, thanks
2: think that. I, I guess my question would be, um, I mean, you had this set up an interesting dichotomy at the start between conservatives and liberals and why um, conservatives do well on talk radio, and on the other hand, liberals sit on the train and listen to cereal. So <sighs> there's kind of a, there is a kind of medium as the message to <laughs> the going on there. Yeah. But particularly when it comes to books, um, you know, you've got these 10 canonical texts here. I can't imagine that just the few of us in this room who consider ourselves liberals, or maybe don't even consider, consider ourselves on the left or center, would even be able to assemble all this, and agree 10 books. Yeah.
1: It'll take us all week to
2: get to world two, I think.
1: Perhaps, yeah.
2: You know, is, is that a, a substantive issue is that a temperamental, is that a cultural issue? Is it that liberals are more irreverent? Do you think? Is it that uh, it's easier if you come from a religious mindset, perhaps, or kind of a, a, if you're given to authority? as something that deserves respect? Is it easier to then look at texts as being canonical? Like, what, what even drives Good. the ability from people to?
1: This? I do think, in kind of a Burkean, Edmund Burkean sense, that there is something in terms of the the root of the term conserve, right? That Burke is worried about what we're losing traditionally in the French Revolution, as we're renaming the days of the week, for instance, um, or burning churches. And so there is a kind of Burkean conservatism in the idea that there's real merit in the past and that, there, that we should really study and pay fealty to our ancestors. Um, but I don't necessarily think, because that was also true with Marx and the Marxists, or the Soviets and the writings of Stalin or Lenin, I don't think that that's necessarily a conservative thing I think it's it's in the United States it was out of necessity because the left was triumphant after World War II and the right had some some decent funding opportunities but they had no movement and to, to build a movement they had to figure out what they believed in and they didn't have a march and they didn't have um, dogs sicked on them they had no images of, of bull Connor and, and fire hoses and so how do you build a movement when there's no big public act of persecution? is it about ideas and about writing, about convincing people about a set of ideas, and so I think that it was out of a sense of necessity. I'm I'm not yet willing to read into it the kind of um, biology, psychology is ideology take that the people I cited earlier are or or that you were alluding to, although it's a really popular way to think about it. So I don't, I don't think about it that way because I think that the, in the United States, perhaps liberals have what well, my advisor at Minnesota, I'd, I ended, I cut that part of the book out actually where you were talking about liberals and perhaps it's a separate project and perhaps that's um, a way that we can apply this political framework, political language, canonical framework to different failures amongst the left to organize uh, because there's probably canons as opposed to a canon amongst the left, the Silent Spring and some other ones. Anyway, the left seems to have more of an oral culture where there's these certain speeches, like I have a dream that have really stood the test of time that we can cite. Or FDRs for freedoms, or I haven't given it as much thought, so I'm kind of spitballing. In any case, that was my advisor's idea, Kurt Wilson, who used to work with Ed at Minnesota, and then and I was really widely pilloried for suggesting that cons- that liberals had no canon uh, by Carlin Campbell, who's a political communication rhetoric scholar. So that, that's a, I don't that's think so they do, what but.
0: What did he say? Like, no, our canon is clearly
1: a list. He listed the two that I just mentioned, and maybe some other ones, but it's been a minute. Um, but that was his argument. We don't, that liberals, we don't have a literary culture, but we have an oral culture, and, uh, in the United States at least. Um, it wasn't an argument I bought, but at least it's, it's a partial answer or a suggestion, a suggestive answer. So, in any case, that's sort of where I'm trying to go in the future is to take a similar framework and apply it to, to different political movements here or, or elsewhere, is this question of how do we get along? as well as fight at the same time, right? Buckley said he wanted to create an energy at National Review so that they would concentrate on fighting communists instead of each other. And that's that's what I think they've been very successful at doing.
0: Would you, would you mind uh, ending by plugging your next project about secession? Yeah. And, te- and tell us a little bit about what the political balances are of that work?
1: Yeah, okay good, so this is, My next project with a colleague at Wake um, Forest—we're in the finishing stages of working with um, Oxford on a project on secession—an American history of secession. It's going to be called "Selling Secession." The idea is not is that secession is not just a formal withdrawal from the Constitution from the United States in the sense that the South seceded, but is a withdrawal from public norms in general, is a fracture of the public. And so there's lots of different ways that we can intermittently secede, whether it's withdrawing from norms of vaccination or whether it's actually leaving and suggesting that African Americans need to go back to Africa. The United Negro Improvement Association through Marcus Garvey suggested that. There's been libertarian attempts to colonize a certain area to to create a new public based on libertarian ideals. In New Hampshire, the same is true with evangelicals in South Carolina, right? Secession by other means. So we're interested in talking about the means by which groups have declared the country irredeemable and have tried to move on, including but not limited to southern fire-eating secessionists like back in Charleston, South Carolina. Um, So we're looking at African Americans, separatists, the Nation of Islam, the Panthers, Marcus Garvey. We're looking at religious folks like the Mormons or the Shakers. Um, We're looking at libertarians. Um, and then we're, we're making sort of hints at others that I just suggested, like um, anti vaxxers and so forth. Um, the idea there is that ses- nobody identifies as a secessionist at least now they don't, it's not like you would say I'm a conservative or a liberal. It's like I'm a secession, what does that mean? Um, in the same sense that so few people now identify as anarchists, that doesn't mean that there can't also be a diffuse language, a kind of common stock of arguments and references, like the Boston Tea Party, for instance, that those seeking secession can pull from. And the argument we're trying to make is that, in a sense, the United States is kind of is kind of built for this, for this argument to never go away because the very reasons that we, in a sense, declared independence or seceded from the British are the same reasons that virtually any group of people can declare independence or secede from, from the American public if they so like to. Uh, so it's sort of a double-edged sword. The more we canonize democratic secessionists, the more democratic secessionists perhaps we'll have. Is that a good plug? Thanks. Thanks. Thank you all very much, this was really fun. I really appreciate it.